As we continue on through church history, we're in the modern age looking at the 1960s into the 1970s now, and we're, we're looking at kind of a backlash to the conservatism that we talked about that happened after World War II. After World War II, everybody kind of wanted everything to be back to the normal, back to the same thing. They want stability, even if it's an artificial stability. And any time that you have any kind of extreme move, there's always going to be an extreme backlash. There's going to be a pendulum. And we see a pendulum swing back again. So it just, it, it keeps happening. Well, in response to what they saw as, as, as their parents' artificial conservatism, we have swings full in the opposite direction. So in 1969, we have Woodstock. You guys familiar with Woodstock? Um, Countercultural movement, the drug culture, the youth culture, the uh, uh, rebellious culture, whatever you want to look at it as, but the countercultural movement, the one that says we want to do anything contrary to what our parents did, had continued to grow. Multiple music festivals had popped up all over the place, uh, arts festivals, all these things that celebrate creativity and free spiritness, etc. Um, those of us who were alive in, in 69, 70, um, I mean, clothing styles got bizarre, and not just, not just, well, every adult thinks their children's clothing style, I mean, consciously trying to be as weird as they could be, like big fur vests on men, you know, because their parents would never have worn big fur vests, I think back to Sonny and Cher, anyway, um, so the Woodstock Ventures Group was formed to create a massive uh, music and arts festival in Woodstock, New York. Okay, that's their whole point. They're going to make a gazillion dollars putting together this huge three-day peace and music festival. Except they couldn't find any land that they could use in Woodstock. So Woodstock isn't in Woodstock. Woodstock is in Bethel, 43 miles away from Woodstock. And yet we still tend to call it Woodstock, right? Because it's the Woodstock group and it's the Woodstock Music and Arts Festival. It's just not Woodstock. Which I think is interesting because everybody goes, yeah, yeah, it, you know, it, it was at Woodstock. You know, no, no, no. So they promised local farmers and authorities they're going to have 50,000 attendees. They're like, this is going to be great for the community, but we're not going to have anything more than that. We're going to cap it at that. And everybody says, well, it's going to be huge. 50,000 people. Young. Yes, on one dairy farm. 50,000 young people on one dairy farm. That's going to be huge. Of course, they sold 186,000 tickets in advance after they promised that they would be no more than 50,000. They prepared for 200,000 people to be there. By the way, there were like over 80 uh, lawsuits against the Woodstock Ventures Group after this. They almost went bankrupt. It took them like a decade to recoup their losses from this because so many people sued them. They lost so much money out of it because they're like, you promised us! Of course, that help that 400,000 people showed up. So they sold nearly 200,000 tickets, and 200 or more than that just crashed through the gates. Didn't pay them a dime. Just showed up. They heard about it and said, I'm a free spirit. I don't need to pay. What are you, the man making me pay for stuff? Anyway, so acts range from hippie drug culture icons like Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and the Grateful Dead these things, it was like, we, we celebrate drug culture to anti-war folk musicians like Arlo Guthrie and Joan Baez. In fact, she had played at Berkeley. Remember when we talked about the Berkeley free speech movement and stuff? 
John Baez had played multiple times and performed there in support of the free speech movement and against the war. So different kind of thing, although Bob Dylan didn't show up. Bob Dylan actually lived nearby, like a baseball's throw from it. He didn't perform. In fact, he complained about so many hippies in his backyard. So, so it's not, everybody always says, oh, everybody that was anybody was there. And they performed. You go, actually, there were a lot of people that didn't. There were a lot of people that said it didn't sound like anything I really wanted to be at. So it sounded like it was just going to be another music festival. Bob Dylan going, I don't like hippies. So interesting stuff. Okay, when you promise 50,000 people, plan for 200,000 and get 400,000, you're going to have some problems, right? So, like, sanitation was a problem. It was horribly muddy. Um, they, just, they had all sorts of different kind of issues. But, not a lot of violence. Everybody was relatively well behaved, which made it very different from the 30th anniversary Woodstock Festival in 99, that had tons of violence and rapes and drug use and arson, and they had to close it down uh, by force early as a result. Why, why is that, do you think? Why is it that the, the 30th anniversary of Woodstock didn't have even remotely the same vibe as the original Woodstock, even though that's what they were aiming for? Probably most of the people who went to the other one had, had not been to the first one. <laughs> yeah, yes, I mean, the, the 18 to 20-year-olds are not, yeah, it, 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 it's the next generation up. What difference does that make, would you think? I mean, the, the promoter promoted as another weekend of peace and music and arts and stuff. And it devolved into raping and pillaging. Why? Actually, that's a wonderful synopsis. Just remember what you can say. That's a wonderful synopsis of it, where you go, if, if the whole thing was love and peace and joy, in 1969, that's an expression against what they saw as a totalitarian controlling artificiality. Their children, the children of people who are reacting against that, you tell them love and peace and joy, they go, so do as thou please. Do whatever you feel like doing. To their parents, they said, well, that means I don't have to do what my parents have dictated my whole life. To these kids, their children, their adult children, they say, right, which means I don't have to do anything that any authority ever says. Jeff, what were you going to say? Yeah, and if their parents said, I'm going to raise you in a lax, there's not going to be so many rules, I want to embrace your you-ness kind of, kind of situation, then... The only pendulum swings that you can go are either, you know, I kind of like some structure in my life, or Mad Max, great, do whatever I want. Anarchy <coughs> is not a good thing. Anarchy is people with the pointiest sticks and the largest muscles get whatever they feel like getting. But this is why we study history in this class. Not just because I think history is great, which, you know, I do. But the reason we study this is because everything we're dealing with today is the result of everything that happened in 1969. And everything that happened in 1969 is the result of stuff that happened in 1922. And everything that happened in 1922 is the result of stuff that happened in 1862. It's, it all feeds into everything that's going on. And so if we find ourselves going, I don't understand what's wrong with people today. Really? I mean, individual
individual actions sometimes still boggle the mind. But societal shifts, look at where it came from. I should say that there was one set of violence that happened in Woodstock um, because they started running out of food because they planned food for 200,000, got 400,000, so strangely enough, halfway through, do the math, right? So the Food for Love stand was running low on supplies of everything. And so they actually raised the prices of their hamburgers and hot dogs from 25 cents to a dollar. They're like, um, can we ration this a little bit? Because everybody's coming in and buying like three, four hamburgers. No, no, no. Just, just get one. You only really need one. And there's all sorts of other people that need to, to eat too. So the only way we could get people to stop buying so many was to quadruple the, plot, the price. So they burned down the concession stand in defiance of it, saying, this is, this is exactly why we're having this festival. This is the man, the establishment, telling us how much we can eat and how much we can spend. Ironically, leaving them less food. The irony. They never thought about that. Anyway, when they heard about the food store shortages, a New York City Jewish community center actually just brought in food. They brought in sandwiches made with 200 loaves of bread, 40 pounds of cold cuts, two gallons of pickles, and they were distributed by a bunch of Catholic nuns. Which I find interesting, since so much of what was going on at Woodstock is, religion's bad. Do whatever you want to do. Don't let them man. Just go, nuns are distributing food made by a Jewish religious center for you. Yeah, I can't speak to that. What's interesting is a picture, a picture of the nun who was being cool, going, yeah, we're here, we're in Woodstock, um, went viral, if you can call it that, in 1969. Went viral, and everybody's like, see, nuns are rocking with us too. And you go, they brought you food. It's kind of a famous picture, completely misunderstood why it was there. Most ironic, the United States Army brought them food. The United States Army airlifted food and medical supplies to them because, uh, Governor Nelson Rockefeller declared it a disaster area. <laughs> well, was the health department documented 5,162 medical cases, including 797 drug abuse cases. But I mean, there's all sorts of, uh, of, of physical issues going on there. And he said, the, the place, I mean, you've got 400,000 people starving, wallowing in mud. At what point do you not call that a disaster area? Any other part in the United States would call that a disaster area. This is a disaster. So the army sent in medics and airdropped food. The crowd were told by the organizers, hey, 45 army doctors and more are here without pay because they did what this is into. Completely missing the irony of the establishment funded aid. They're like, see, even the army thinks we're cool. They've sent medics because the medics are like, man, we want to be at Woodstock too. You're starving because you're stupid. You, you broke into a place. Half of you are here because you broke into it and didn't want to pay for it. The people who actually set this up didn't plan for that. They planned for four times as many people as they promised people they would bring. The United States government said, okay, you're starving. We'll help. And you say, see, the United States government is all in what we're in. It's the structure and the establishment that is actually making sure that we don't die of starvation. 
the structure and the establishment that you are fighting against. Now, bear in mind, <coughs> before you think I'm saying, okay, it's all pro-establishment. This is also the establishment in the army that is currently <laughs> drafting people and sending them to Vietnam, a war that most people in the United States were saying, I don't really understand why we're over there, including most of the people fighting in Vietnam. So it's like, is the establishment on top of things? Are they great? Is it, you should totally trust the government? No. The anti-establishment people, they're smart. This makes total sense. No. And now we're kind of back to what we talked about last week with Berkeley, aren't we? The People's Park stuff. Who was right? The students or the National Guard shooting into the crowd, you know, tear gas on children, the police shooting shotguns into the crowd? No. It's the crowd throwing bricks and rocks at the policemen for having the audacity to say, this isn't your land. You don't get to use it how you feel like using it. Again, anytime we start saying, the rules don't necessarily apply to me because I'm bigger or cooler or younger or older than the rules. Therefore, the government says I can do whatever I feel like doing. Teenagers say I can feel like I can do whatever I feel like doing. Anytime that we start saying, it's all whatever I feel like doing at the moment, you know, troubles. One last funky detail. Yes? Just a question. With people being hungry and all those issues, were people leaving or did people just... No. They were just saying... They Where's my food? Just take care of me. I want to draw your attention back to the Jews in the wilderness. <coughs> Where's my food? <coughs> you could leave and go find food. I'm here. You guys organize this. Where's my food? That's what most of it was. Okay. Arguably the most iconic moment from all of Woodstock was when Jimi Hendrix played the Star Spangled Banner on his electric guitar. This is something that kind of defined the whole weekend, which is interesting because it was supposed to be Roy Rogers singing Happy Trails. But Roy Rogers said, I'm not going to go. I'm going to get booed off the stage by all those, quote, blankety-blank hippies. I can't actually quote Roy Rogers here. But um, he's like, I'm not going to go there. And his manager's like, oh, this will be big, it'll be huge, it'll be kitschy, it'll be fun. And he's no, I'm not doing it. So, kind of off the cuff at the last minute, Jimi Hendrix played the Star Spangled Banner, but he performed it at 9 o'clock in the morning on Monday morning after the three-day event, which means that only a fraction of the people were there. There's only a tiny bit of people that actually heard him play the national anthem on the electric guitar. Even though roughly 794% of the people claimed to have heard him do this. And I, I use that number not just to be goofy, but an amazing number of people claim to have been at Woodstock. I mean, yes, there were 400,000 people there, but there's easily a good, you know, 2 million people who say, I was at Woodstock. Right? Don't think you were. It, when you look at all of some people, there's, oh no, I'm not going to name names. There's somebody who claimed to be at Woodstock until, until somebody rather publicly said, you were... You were in college in like California at the time. You were not in Woodstock Stock Anyway. But that's if there's ever a event in American history where people will claim to be more people claim to have been at Woodstock than people claim to be Irish on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> anyway. 69, the Jesus movement took hold in America. With all this countercultural stuff going on, all this movement toward that, there's this general move toward being less organized, less structured, less conservative. Well, that even happens within the church. It's not just people leaving the church. It's not just kids saying, I'm going to go have sex, drugs, rock and roll over here. It's people even within the church. So contrary to the other hippie movements we've been talking about, 
the Jesus movement in general was pretty evangelical in its theology, which we don't normally think of. We normally think, oh, the flower children, and they're crazy, and they've got wacky views about Jesus. You know, actually, no. They tended to be extremely biblical, tended to be extremely scrupulously solid and conservative in their theology. They just like the idea of a Jesus that smiles a lot, looks like this, and runs around telling everybody, dude, love, man, love. <laughs> totally appeals to them on a different level than it did to their parents. Their parents said, yes, yes, the structure of religion makes me feel good that I go there every Sunday and we always dress nicely and everybody says, yes, God loves you when I go home. Feel very justified. They say, no, messy, dirty, long-haired, smiling, brooded Jesus that says love everybody. Same religion, different parts that they're glomming onto, right? In fact, the argument could be made, has been made, that since these guys are focusing on a very sincere following of seeking out God's justice and unconditional love for everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, etc., based on Christ's love, the argument can be made they're more conservative than their parents are in a number of ways. More biblically conservative, right? Because we've talked about conservative. There's political conservatism and there's biblical conservatism, and sometimes they overlap. And sometimes they don't. So in some ways, these guys are much more conservative than their parents because they're actually trying to consciously live out what they see in Scripture. So the Jesus freaks, because the term had been made acid freaks. That's for people who were taking LSD and things. And so everybody talked about the acid freaks. Well, these are the Jesus freaks. They're stoned on Jesus. They tended to use the good news translation. Remember when we talked about that? Oh, it's not. I see, we had one. I didn't yeah, we did. Uh, it's a little bad. Anyway, so they tend to use the good news in their Bible, in their Bible study, in their worship things. They adopted the one-way sign. Have you ever seen this? You know, old T-shirts and stuff like that. Just a finger pointing up, going one way. This is all the times where you see somebody like make a touchdown and point up like this. A lot of that is pointing back to this era of there's one way, and I want to point you to Jesus and things. Um, Echoing, uh, I'm not even going to read the scriptures, but echoing scriptures like John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12, saying there is one way, and only one way. And let me, with one hand signal, show you what I mean by that. Especially when other fingers are being used by, and, and I'm not just being facetious, I mean, there's a whole, there's a lot of t-shirts and patches and things with other fingers being pointed up, and all the, these Christians in the Jesus movement said, no, no, this finger, to point to him. And they consciously focused on Jesus, which is why they tend to call it the Jesus movement. Like, let's get past all this churchy stuff, all the ecclesiology, all the various doctrines that have separated people in the past. What did Jesus do, and how should we live like that? Let's just do that. It makes the Anabaptists look complicated. You know, the Anabaptists went back and said, well, let's look at the Bible and see what Jesus... These guys are like, just Jesus. What do we do? So, the Jesus movement comes along, and they say, traditional worship forms, I, I don't care about that kind of stuff. In fact, we don't want that kind of stuff. We're going to have a much more organic, much more relational kind of model. Um, we're going to be communal, communal in what we do instead of ritualized. We're going to have simple music played on a guitar. Um, we're going to talk about our feelings. Jesus is my friend. He's my savior, not my religion. So there's this whole move of saying, let's have, in evangelicalism, we talk about having a relationship with Christ. Let's, let's focus on that. I mean, let's genuinely talk about having a relationship with Christ. So tell me, what are the pros and cons of this? Because again, nothing's ever perfect. So there are benefits to this, and there are drawbacks to this. Give me some examples of some of the benefits or drawbacks. 
drawback would be you lose the reverence and fear of God. You can. Um, reverence and fear don't automatically require a specific style, but um, you can you can have a very you can have a very uh, unstructured uh, discussion where you still are in awe of God. But you're right, when you're focusing on how much he loves you and how much you love him, you focus on him as your friend, etc., you start to that's where you start to lose some of that that awe and instead of just the, the closeness. What else? Makes it accessible. It does make it a lot more accessible. I don't have to go to a big church, figure out where the nursery is, decide how am I supposed to dress? Oh, I don't know the song. We're all sitting on a campfire on a beach strumming a guitar. You have them stroll up and they go, Come on, come join us. Pretty, pretty accessible, yeah. What else? What are you going to say? One potential drawback would be um, without structure, there can be um, an increased risk of getting off kilter without accountability. Yeah, accountability is the big word there. It's, you, without that accountability, you can go off into left field and there's no way to to guarantee that anybody's even going to notice that. Yes? I was thinking, not too many years ago, there was a couple, Tony and Lisa Frank, who were here. And Tony's brother was in the uh, Children of God, or the Jesus people. Uh -huh. And he, he came here to Sunday school, and he was explaining what it was like to be in the commune. Uh -huh. And really, they had some positive things as far as stewardship, because everyone that came, they had a certain amount of money that they had, but they pooled all their resources, and then it went for the ministry. Uh -huh. And then you were allowed a few trips that you could go back to visit family. Yep. But then everything, and so the doctors put, you know, everyone did use their gifts in the community. And so they had a tremendous outreach in the Chicago area. Oh, yeah. But they had restrictions, but they were glad. So it's interesting, the restrictions that they had in their community to keep their community going. But it worked, at least for a while. Which is, which is, well, yeah. Jesus still people is still going on. Yeah. So what's interesting is, in some ways, it is more restrictive and in some ways less restrictive than, say, our church family here, our community here. So it's all—it's not always there are no rules. It's, it's, but it's, so it is interesting. Now, what gets really interesting is when people look at a commune like Jesus People USA, do they see that as, well, that's communism? Or do they see that as, well, that's, that's first century church? Well, it kind of depends on which side of the political fence you're standing on, doesn't it? So there are a lot of of conservatives that saw that as negative. Now, I will say that it's so prevalent that a lot of conservatives joined in on this, like Billy Graham, who's being part of the Jesus People movement, saying, you know, yeah, I, will, I see this as a positive. And he wasn't alone. I love this. This is the single most ironic album cover I know. Pat Boom sings the new songs of the Jesus People. There's a lot of conservatives, very button-down, white-bred conservatives saying, I get this. I understand what's going on. Yeah. Did the Jesus movement, or does it, does it get them more into scripture? Or oh, yeah. Of, okay, so they're deep into scripture. So yeah. it isn't just this Jesus I know about them. It's Jesus and they learn about them. Yeah, it's, okay. I mean, and, and obviously, like with any movement, there's going to be some people doing different things. There are going to be some people who just say, I just like the guitar music. Um, there are other people, the, the point of most of this is to say, let's open up our Bibles. Let's interact. Uh, I'm not going to give a sermon. We're going to do a Bible study together. Uh, 
a lot of the growth of the campus ministries that we have already seen being planted up to this point. The, the, the explosion of growth comes at this time where um, a lot of young people are realizing, wait, this is my Bible. This is me. I can get into this. I can learn about Christ. Yeah. No, go ahead. I was going to say what, one benefit is um, it, I wouldn't say it, it strips Christianity of cultural ties because it's a different culture. Right. But it it helps to I don't know divorce Christianity from the whole God and country Christendom yeah. thing that can, can be a severe roadblock. Mm -hmm. it, it's less a white Anglo-Saxon American yeah. we're going to put the Christian flag on the on the on the dais kind of thing, and more of a Jesus. Let's just get back to Jesus. Now you're right, though. I think you're very astute. It's not unculturalizing it; it's giving it a different culture. But just like every once in a blue moon, Mark will consciously do a, a classic hymn slightly differently to say, "Can we stop and think about this? Not just enjoy the thing we've always enjoyed for the last thirty years of our lives as Christians." But can we stop and think about these words that we are more used to? Can, you know, and, and, and I, I'm not a big, I'm very much a purist. I don't even like when they mess with Sherlock Holmes on TV. So I, but I get the idea of saying there are times to stop and say, instead of just being used to the rote repetition of this, can we stop and think about this for a moment? Okay, so a generation of people are choosing revolution over rebellion. And... In some ways, those are synonymous, but I really want to think of it more as, instead of just being a rebel, I'm rebelling against everything my, my parents are doing, think of it as revolution, as saying, I, this should be done differently, not for differences sake, but because there's a richer something that we're missing, which there's no way you can miss it. I mean, cover of Time magazine, cover of Life magazine, cover of everything. But it's really easy to misunderstand, because a lot of conservative parents thought their children had just gone hippie, and they're into sex and drugs which some were, but most of them not. And, and so their parents, oh, you've grown your hair out, you've grown a big beard, you're out living on a beach with people, you're doing sex and drugs, and they're like, no, we're on a beach doing Bible studies, strumming guitars, singing to Jesus. And the parents are like, yeah, hippies. <laughs> Dad, I'm in church more than you are. I'm always in church. I mean, every day we're doing Bible studies together. Every day we're talking about Jesus together. I just brought people to the Lord the other day. When's the last time you did that, Dad? You who is a good Christian sitting quietly in your pews inside the prison cell, you call a church building. When was the last time you made a difference in somebody's life? See, that kind of rebellious, those are the conversations going on around 1970. And all the secular asset freaks kind of assume the same thing. They're like, see, they're just like us. To which the Jesus people, no, so not like you. Dress like you, so not like you. So, like Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice produced a secular musical about Christ called Jesus Christ Superstar in 1970, right? Not because they even necessarily like Christ, but because they, they said, well, this is big right now. This is huge. Rice said, oh, we don't see Christ as God. This is the right man at the right time in the right place. We're basically trying to tell the story of Christ as a man. And I think it increases his statue, stature by looking at him just as a man. You know, he's, he's an interesting guy. The next year, Stephen Schwartz Follow that up with Godspell in 71, which is also about Jesus, and not even remotely about him being divine or anything like that. Neither production is coming at, 
trying to increase or grow personal faith, either one's coming from personal faith on the creators or the performers. Schwartz went on record to say, well, this is about the creation of a community of faith. This is the, about a social movement. This is about how do you get people to actually believe something so ridiculous. That's what this is about. It's not about Jesus. In fact, in Godspell, he's usually portrayed as a man in, in clown face with a cheap Superman t-shirt. That's the way you're supposed to show Jesus, because he's ridiculous. But likable. But ridiculous. He's a clown. But a good clown. Actor Ted Neely said that when they did Superstar, they were usually stoned or drunk, and they were laughing through the whole thing, because they thought it was ridiculous. Having said that, both of these things have genuinely touched people over the last 50 years and changed lives. In fact, Ted Neely said after 40 years of playing Jesus, it had changed him profoundly, drew him close to the Lord. It's like, yeah, this is a totally different perspective on Christ than I had in 1970 when I started playing and thought it was funny and a paycheck. Now I look at him like, oh, God is amazing. So it does change people, even, even when eh, that's not what the intention was. One of the groups involved in the Jesus movement should be kind of familiar to us. Jesus People USA, that we were just talking about, or Japuza. Um, they're founded in 72, and it's a Christian commune in Chicago, and they bought uh, Chicago's Chelsea Hotel to provide living space for its members. Um, and yes, we went and visited Japuza a couple years ago. Um, each member lives in their own small apartment on one of ten floors of the building. Uh, and when I say small apartment, I mean small apartment. These were originally like hotel rooms. And even hotel rooms before, they, they didn't even have their own bathrooms. There's a community bathroom, like, a, or, or <laughs> so it's like a dorm room. Everybody's got their own dorm room. Married couples get to share a room, which is nice. Uh, children are usually placed in rooms on the same floor as their parents, if they can. But a lot of times they'll have children's floors and stuff. So you get to see your, your children sometimes. Um, members usually work at, not always, but they usually work at one of the several businesses owned by Japuza. And then, yes, they pool all their resources. All the money goes back to the commune. And if they ever need to use money, like we were talking to somebody that said, if I want to go on a date with my wife, I'll go and ask, could I have $20 so we can go you know, get a nice dinner, it's our anniversary. And the elders will say, hey, 25, it's your anniversary. Or they'll say, eh, 15, I think you can find something cheaper. You know, because, but you let them make those decisions. But as Judy was saying, there's an appreciation because a lot of these people are coming out of very chaotic environments in their lives. Having this kind of structure, structured by people that care about you, they're fine with that. They even have their own free clothing store to hand out whatever people need. So you're, you're taken care of. For nearly 30 years, Japuza oversaw the Cornerstone Music Festival, published Cornerstone Magazine. Anybody ever read Cornerstone Magazine or go to Cornerstone Music Festival? Some of us. Yay! So good stuff. Really good stuff. Um, 89, Japuza joined the Evangelical Covenant Church because they needed some accountability. Um, they were having some troubles in the 70s and 80s with um, leadership becoming increasingly totalitarian and authoritarian. Um, they controlled who was allowed to date whom. Uh, they did spankings for adults who disagreed with leadership. Um, they were struggling, and they realized, you know, maybe a church that watches over us, not I mean, the covenant, they're not going to watch over too hard. I know, there's a whole, I'm not picking on the covenant. I mean, the whole point of the covenant is, well, figure this out yourselves, but we're here for it if you need us. Which is kind of perfect for Japuza. They needed a, a, a denomination that would say, we're not going to let you do anything crazy, 
but we're basically going to let you do whatever you feel like doing. And that's the covenant in a nutshell. 1994, the book Recovering from Churches That Abuse shared testimonies from a bunch of Japuza members who said that they were physically and sexually abused over the years in the commune. And what's interesting is um, scholars and other, other people in, in, the, uh, in, in the Christian community were split as to how to respond to that because Japuza had done such great work and were so weird. I mean, they, they've done this amazing outreach in, in Chicago, but they're a commune. And in 1994, I mean, that's so 20 years ago. So it's like, do you see them as people who are weird? Do you see them as people who are amazing? So two people I had as profs at Trinity had two remarkably different responses to this. One said, yeah, they're a dangerous group. They have hurt people, and they need better oversight. Another one said, no, this is a smear campaign. This is bad uh, uh, poll taking. This is... It's badly done all the way around. Japuza it's amazing. Like, actually, I respect both of these professors. Interesting. So, 2014, documentary No Place to Call Home premiered, citing 73 more cases of sustained abuse, mostly children. Amazingly, this might be hard for you to imagine, but if you have small children living in their own rooms, on a floor that isn't necessarily in your house, with other adults and other children in the floor with them, bad stuff can go down. I don't know if you, if you picture that, but amazingly, especially if you're reaching out to people who are coming out of extremely bruised, broken, emotional trauma in their lives, like, which you should be. We should be reaching out to people who are traumatized, people who are even dangerous. Those are the people who need Jesus. Agree. I want those people in our church. I just don't want them alone with my children. So I understand, even if you say it's not that the church is abusive, you know, the situation at least lends itself to abuse. And so both Japuza and the ECC were sued by a lot of people after this came out. Because the biggest problem that they saw was not necessarily that abuse was happening, but that Japuza kind of swept it under the rug and said, well, you know, it happens. Notwithstanding, they spent more than 45 years reaching to the poorest people in Chicago, reaching people that the church tends to ignore, tends to just dismiss. But we look at them and say, well, you're bizarre looking. I, I don't, why would I want you in my church family? And we need to get past that. As their website says, community means communion of heart and spirit. It's a network of relationships. This implies a response to the cry of our brothers and sisters, especially the poorest, the weakest, the most wounded and a sense of responsibility for them. And this is demanding and disturbing. Now let's be honest. The vast majority of the American church likes neither demanding nor disturbing. We want it to be simple, and we don't want you to creep us out. So if things are complicated or messy, or somebody is complicated or messy, or somebody's a little creepy, we tend to back up when everything in Scripture tells us not to. Wendy, stay here. I'll tell you about it later. So, 1970, Chick Tracks begins publishing. Speaking of vaguely creepy. <laughs> how, many, how many of you are familiar with Chick Tracks? Okay, the rest of you? Yeah. We used to, on Saturday mornings at, at school, on Saturday mornings we used to walk by the, uh, um, the fraternity and sorority row and pick up all the Chick Tracks sitting in the gutters that were left by the people at the parties that people had thrown them at the night before. 
published by newspaper edit illustrator Jack T. Chick. Um, these tracks combined the art styles of underground comics, comics spelled with an X. So I mean, this is this is the edgy comics. So that kind of art style with ultra conservative evangelical theology. It's like the gay revolution is underway. Oh, that's horrible. The horror of it. And they presented sensationalistic messages. There's always some sort of, almost always some sort of sinner's prayer at the end, saying, if you if you don't accept Christ, you'll burn in hell. And Satan is trying to make none of which we necessarily disagree with. We're back to what I talked about with Cromwell. I'm like, man, I agree with like 85% of what you say, and I disagree with like 93% of how you do it. So um, but these at least are conversation starters. You cannot look, get through a chick track. You know where you know where I find most of the pictures of chick tracks on secular websites because everybody's like, man, these things are a trip. Here, check it out. I scan the entire thing and I put up the gospel message on my atheist website. Like Jack Chick would go win. Yeah. You know, this, Score. I, I got atheists putting my stuff out. They put out more than 800 million tracks over the last 50 years. They've also been declared a hate group. Why? Because they say witchcraft is evil. They say homosexuality is bad. They talk about false religions like Islam or Buddhism. Pardon me? Catholicism. So that's hate speech, right? If you say that witchcraft is evil, that's hate speech. If you say homosexuality is bad, that's hate speech. If you say you think other religions that are mutually exclusive to your own are false because yours is true, and if yours is, if one of them is true and one of them is false and they're mutually exclusive and you think yours is true, then by definition theirs is false. Yeah, hate speech. I look at it and go, dude, uh, logic. Yeah, if, if things are mutually exclusive and you think you're right, then you have to think they're wrong. That's basic logic. Right? Now, how they've done it tends to be part of the problem. But that's not, at least on paper, why they're declared a hate speech. They're declared a hate speech because, or a hate group because, like, well, they speak out against these things. Which is not hate. It's just disagreement. The way they do it can be hateful. But it's interesting that in some of the lawsuits and things, that's not even brought up. So tell me, how important is it how you express things to people? Not just that you express them, but how you express them. Anyway, speaking of that, Late Great Planet Earth was published in 1970. Anybody here how Lindsay, Late Great Planet Earth? Did, who booed? No boo! Okay, the book is written by rugged career, uh, Korean War veteran, campus crusade leader, Hal Lindsay, right? No, it wasn't. Actually, it was not. It was almost predominantly, if not entirely, written by author C.C. Carlson. Because you'll notice it's a Hollandy with C.C. Carlson. You see that, right? With C.C. Carlson. Same thing. Hollandy. C.C. Carlson. Carol C. Carlson. Oh, and if you have that response, then you understand why. Amazing. Okay, what's amazing is it was four women. They went, oh. All the guys are like, okay. <laughs> Zonderman said, a female writer of prophetic literature? Yeah, no, that's unpublishable, man. Nobody will buy it. And they might have been right, especially at that time in history. They may very well have been. But so they said, okay, um, Lindsay is 
kind of a good public face. Uh, he agrees with all the stuff she's saying. And even though he, as far as we can tell, has written, he's 40 years old and has written nothing longer than a term paper up to this point. They're like, okay, um, she's just ghostwriting for him. Which is more common than you realize. An amazing number of your books from Christian authors are not by those Christian authors. No. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Seriously? Yeah, and the bigger, the bigger the name, the more chance there is that it was written by somebody completely different. Now, usually, those people will work with that Christian author, that celebrity author, but a lot of times they don't. A lot of times it's, I'm going to write this according to the kind of stuff that this person's ministry kind of sounds like. It's, it's not entirely uncommon for like a pastor or a big leader, a big name in Christianity, to be handed a manuscript by somebody and, and, and just kind of read it over in an afternoon, make a few editorial changes, put their name on it, and hand it back to the publisher. The publisher says, no, book by Celebrity Mick Johnson. You know, it, it, but, but it, and, and it has their name on it, and you never even see the name of the ghostwriter on it anywhere. Kind, this, of, kind of like all this stuff we know about Socrates is actually written by Cajun. Okay, don't be picking on Socrates, though. Yes. I'm not picking no, on no. Socrates. It's, but, I like Socrates. I do, too. But, um, but yes, where you say, um, yeah, Socrates didn't write anything. Jesus didn't write anything. But that's not the point. You know? <laughs> but yeah, it's like, except, uh, um, it's more like, uh, it's more like, it's more like they're lip syncing. You know, it's, it's like, okay, you do realize that's, that's, that's not Audrey Hepburn's voice in My Fair Lady, right? You know, it's, it's, she's not singing that. She has a nice voice, but that's not her. You know? Go, go watch some, or, or uh, my, my, my Fair Lady, but I was going to say, um, Sing in the Rain. It's a whole movie about that. Okay, anyway. What's the basis of the book? I, I know I have that book from my dad's thing, and I've never read it. Okay. It presents a very sensationalistic expression of a literal, literalist saying everything in the Bible is completely literal, everything in Revelation is completely literal, premillennial, dispensational, Eschatology, talking about the end times. We've talked about all these terms in other times, so I'm not going to go into it. But So it's saying, um, let's look at uh, Revelation and say, when it talks about those, uh, talks about them bugs flying around with the human faces, those are Apache helicopters. And clearly, clearly the, the Great Bear to the North is the USSR. And all that kind of prophecy stuff, at least the... The, um, the popularity and, and um, I don't want to say this, I'm trying to be very careful. Um, the modern take on how we do biblical prophecy, a lot of that started with this book. Especially stuff that's like, okay, let's talk about how the United States fits in with prophecy. Um, anything you say about how the United States fits in with prophecy is all interpretation, because Revelation never says the United States, so we're good. Um, so, starting with the creation of modern Israel, 1948, the book argues that within a generation, within 40 years, so by 1988, Jesus will come back, you'll have the Great Tribulation, the whole schmear. 1988, everything's done. Which, amazingly, didn't happen. Uh, the authors pointed out that, uh, they looked at the, remember when we talked about the Six-Day War last time? They looked at the rise of the Soviet Union. They looked at weather changes and earthquakes. They looked at the ozone layer depletion. They looked at all this stuff, and they said, we are in the end times. All this stuff, pardon me, is, is 
there's going to be this one world religion, um, here's what the tribulation is going to be like, yada, yada, yada. This whole mindset of look at everything around you and figure out, are we in the end times? Remember, we've talked about various cults that have done this over the years, and the Jehovah's Witnesses, what have you. This is the first time in evangelicalism that this became the thing, to look at the world around you and say, is this the end times? Is this what this is like? The book sold 10 million copies by the end of the decade, another 18 million copies in the next decade. And you go, well, um, after 1988, you know, yeah, like 25 million copies after that, because he kept changing it. Clearly another 10 years. Clearly, Okay, apart from the fact that you're being more biblical in your theology, this is exactly the same wonkiness that we tend to chuckle at in other cults and things. Bear in mind, this is pretty much the same time period where people gobbled up Eric von Denneken's Chariots of the Gods. Ah, ancient astronauts are the ones that built the pyramids. And Clearly, this Mayan temple, that's a picture of an alien. He goes, yeah, the world loves that. They're like, yeah. You've got youth that are saying, parents pretty much destroyed the planet. You've got parents saying, pretty much the next generation is a write-off. Everybody going, everything's falling apart. Everything's just gone horrible. Um, any kind of book that's apocalyptic, that says the world is bigger and more mysterious and wacky, this is where, um, this is the same public that ate up 1974's The Bermuda Triangle, which is the thing that popularized the notion that there's some sort of statistical anomaly going on in the Bermuda Triangle, when, when there isn't. Statistically, there are no more ships and planes lost in the Bermuda Triangle than anywhere else. I mean, there's some weird stuff that went down. And, yeah, if I'm writing books, I'm going to have fun with it. But statistically, no. It's, there's lots of places around the world that have much more of a, of a strange set of occurrence than that. But Charles Berlitz writing the Bermuda Triangle is like, yeah, maybe it's alien astronauts. Maybe it's Atlantis and weird magnetic things from the such and such and such. And, yes, my parents owned all three of these books. <laughs> and I read them all at an impressionable young age. So I'm very familiar with Oh, they also, a lot of books came out about Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster. And everybody wanted to know that the world was much more colorful than you thought. Yes? I, I was just listening to the oldies station on the radio yesterday. And the song came on from about this era, I think. Um, and you tell me over and over and over again, my friend, you don't believe we're on the edge of destruction. Yeah, Barry McGuire sounding like he gargled glass. <laughs> oh yeah, everybody's like, oh, it's all falling apart. It's all falling apart. So yes, these kinds of books, just people are like, gobble, 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 gobble. They're so popular, they made a documentary. Documentary of the late great planet Earth. Narrated by Orson Welles, being more serious than you've ever heard him, ever. Well, he also did, um, let me yeah, that everybody believed the, um, the aliens. Oh, the War of the Worlds? That was yeah. back in 38, though. Okay. Well, yeah, but it's still Orson Welles. It is, it is. But for the Jesus Movement generation, this was the Book of Revelation. When you ask them, describe what happens in the Book of Revelation, their mental pictures, late great planet Earth. That's what, the, it's the scared straight of that generation. Actually, scared straight was from that generation. But, okay, you see, <laughs> it's the biblical version of scared straight. Much like Left Behind was for their children. And some of you are rolling your eyes going, Left Behind? That's because you're too young to remember Late Great Planet Earth. It's like, 
And, and I don't know what it will be 20 years from now, but 20 years from now, Megan and Alex are going to be rolling their eyes at the book that everybody must read now about biblical prophecy. And it's colored, the writing of prophetic literature, it's colored basic perspective on how life works for people ever since. And I say that because, for instance, in 1981, within a month and a half of each other, the Pope and Reagan were both the victims of attempted assassinations, right? And an amazing number of people. I remember reading magazine articles where people were like, is this signs of the end? I mean, the Pope and the President, somebody's trying to take him out. Is this the one world government doing this? Go. Okay, I'm not saying that that's, that's wrong to ask that question. I'm just saying 20 years before, nobody would have ever thought to ask that question. Wait, two rather massive things happened at the same time? How is this an example of what the end times is going to be like? Is this the end times? To which, to which multiple cults jump up and go, yes! <laughs> but all the other Christians will go, what? You know, wait, why, why is that where your brain went? And if you say, no, actually, it makes total sense to me. That, I mean, this massive upheaval, is this the end times? You go, then you are living in the post-late great planet Earth generation. Because that kind of a mindset is all after that. So how influential is mass media in the creation of a society's perception of reality? What we think is going on around us. Huge. Lindsay and Carlson followed that up in 1972 with Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. Not sensationalistic at all. And then in 75, with the liberation of planet Earth, all sorts of other things. There's like 12 sequels to this. And you'll notice that by this time, um, there is no C.C. Carlson on the cover. Oh, she's still writing him. But his name is such a draw, yeah, she's not even on the cover anymore. She's gone. So do they, like her, yeah. do the ghostwriters, they just, since they're getting her money, they don't care about that at all? Yeah, I can't why do I care? they don't want the attention and the... Not everybody writes because they want attention. Some of them are just like, I just want the paycheck. Some of them are like, I want my stuff out there, and I know nobody will ever buy it if they know I'm a woman. So. Well, yeah, I mean, you even have like Jane Austen writing as a lady for yeah. a long time. Uh, there's several, um, one in particular, there's one famous uh, writer of Star Trek episodes who just gave her initials because she didn't want anybody to know that she was a woman. Or Emily Bronte. Or Emily Bronte. I mean, Charlotte Bronte. Bronte. Any Bronte. All right. Since then, Lindsay has gone on to have a prophetic ministry on television, speaking about the role of Israel in the United States and the Antichrist, whom he has more than once publicly outed as Barack Obama. Um, kind of out there. When TBN dumps you because you're too out there, when TBN <laughs> says you are too pro-Israel, too anti-Arab, too sensationalistic, you're out there. You're, you're a little kooky. For those of you that don't remember, TBN, founded in 1973 by uh, Assemblies of God evangelistic couple Paul and Jan Crouch. Um, Jan is famous for rather interesting hairstyle and makeup style. Uh, not that there's... Thank you, Seinfeld. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But I mean, just... But, I mean, it's, it's, this is dramatic. This is... I mean, when, when she had to have special... You, maybe you can't even see them. You have to have special false eyelashes created because normal false eyelashes just aren't big enough. You know, <laughs> you're going for sensationalistic. Um, Paul was famous for flamboyant, very expensive clothes. Very, very expensive clothes. They had very extravagant, even garish sets, furniture. Um, 
They kept talking about, we need your money. You know, we, we're, we're, we're running out of money here. And I'm like, dude, sell one of your gold thrones. <laughs> Make some money off of that. You can only have six of them instead of seven of them on the set. Okay, yeah. So now we know well, this is, their flagship title was called Praise the Lord. It is called Praise the Lord. No, yeah, it is still out. Which is not to be confused with Praise the Lord Club or the PTL Club. <laughs> that was the flagship title founded by Assemblies of God evangelistic couple Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Who also was famous for colorful makeup and big hair. Man, you guys, I'm going to give you guys you know, money after class because some of you are like, I know exactly where this is going. Are they together? <laughs> um... Did they get divorced and he was in jail? Anyway. Yeah, that's a... He's clearly there's a style going here. He has a program again. Yep. And, and... I don't want to spend much time on this, but we need to... Pardon me? What? I, I said that he looks like an E. I, I think they did a bad job with their branding. I, I, I can see that. Um, I want to be careful that... Even if somebody has done something horrendous 20 years ago, that doesn't mean that God can't use them now. Paul was holding on to people's coats while they killed Stephen. And we like Paul. So, I mean, it's, it, we want to make sure that we, we give people the opportunity to change and grow, even while we say what you did is reprehensible. 1971, The Exorcist is published. Why do I include this? I mean, it's fiction. What's the big deal? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Yeah. I've actually heard that too, because it nails the basic vibe. It nails the basic gist of how they how they understand things, and creates how a lot of other people understood it. It's a phenomenally successful novel. I mean, massive, tremendously successful, and it spawned a phenomenally successful franchise, movie franchise, started in '73. And yes, people are like, "Oh, it's it's great." You know, Catholics and sensationalistic non-Christians all went and went, "Oh, this is amazing." Okay, do you remember how influential mass media is in the formation of public understanding of things? Yeah. Secular culture's view of religion changed in the span of a half or of, of, of a two-hour movie. All of a sudden, this changed everything about how they viewed things. For the first time, religion popular became about the supernatural. It's been about miracles, but not about the supernatural. Oh, God parted Red Seas in 56. Oh, yeah. Oh, we've seen all sorts of different things. But, ooh, spooky. Not so much. You haven't seen that so much on screen. What's all that stuff going on? Somewhat. Somewhat. But to say, I don't want to split hairs. But, um, no, 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 it's all right. Because it is actually an interesting film study. But I don't want, I, Dracula is actually, if you read the original Dracula book, it's actually an extremely Catholic book. Um, and, and some of that comes over into the movie where faith conquers the evil here. This is saying religion is the spooky part. I mean, it's all part of this whole supernatural. Nobody understands it. You have to wear a collar and speak Latin to understand this stuff because this is all just that weird, freaky stuff. Why? Why would it be that Let's see, let's see if we can go back to Dracula. Why would it be then in 1931, that's when Dracula came out, 1931, people would say, yes, faith stops the monsters. And in 1971, a generation later, people go, yeah, religion, 
nobody gets that stuff. I mean, part, yeah, A, you look at it and you go, they're still monsters. Obviously, that didn't work. But you also look at it and go, well, then this is all part of that establishment that I'm reacting against. But then you also look at it and go, well, if there's anything there, it's got to be magic. But you also have an entire generation of people who have said, I have ceased to understand what religion even is. I don't get any of this kind of stuff. Um, Catholic priests became the heroes of the supernatural because they've got mystical powers. Not faith. In fact, that's a big thing in the book and in the movie that our hero priest had lost his faith. And they bring in this old priest who's uh, who's a professional exorcist, and he has a heart attack. And so the faithless priest has to somehow carry on and, and stop the demon, and he does it by finally saying, Demon, come into me. I open my soul to you. Possess me. And then as the demon possesses him, he throws himself out the window and kills himself, thus killing the demon. And evangelical Christians go, what? Wait, you have to speak Latin to get rid of a demon? There's this whole days-long exorcism service, and you have to do it exactly the right way, and you have to do all this. And, and, and Christians go, the whole Jesus movement, people go, did, did you read the scripture how other people in the Bible did this? It wasn't even remotely like any of this kind of stuff. And the one key element in all exorcism in scripture is faith. The one thing that you argued, you know, really need, to speak Latin and all that kind of stuff. But, so, if you'll remember, even recently, prior to this, Catholicism was seen as kind of that weird religion by most people in the United States. Suddenly, in large part, part to, due to one book and one movie, wearing a collar became the public face of Christianity. And so for like the last 40 years, if there is, a, if there is an overt Christian character on a TV show, they're probably a priest. Or they're the bad guy. Or there are priests who's the bad guy. Very seldom, very seldom, do you have somebody on, on, on a TV show who is a Protestant pastor shown to be a good person. And there's a whole TV show about that, wasn't there? What was it? Anybody remember a TV show that ran for several seasons? About a family? Seventh Heaven? Yeah! That was good! What was it called? Seventh Heaven! <laughs> who's the guy who, uh, who played uh, Stephen... Uh, yeah. Oh, by the way, came out and he's a pedophile. And everybody said, knew it. Amazing. I read an article, actually, in a, in a major magazine that, that, where somebody said, I knew it. Because he, he played Well, he played a Protestant pastor, and I'm like, knew it was too good to be true. He's go, really? The one show? The one show that's... Oh, 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 oh. Anyway, an entire generation of spiritual horror and and subgenre, we have to stop the apocalypse movies came out. We have to stop God. We have to stop the whole the, 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 the whole apocalypse from happening. We have to stop revelation from happening. Only we can do that. Yeah. Entire generation of this. People love quoting scripture, misquoting scripture, pulling things out of out of uh, out of context, saying, uh, like in Revelations where it says no, there's no book of Revelations. In Revelation it says this, but you've misquoted it and pulled it out of its context to try to make for an interesting action moment in your movie. Let's be honest, and I will ask Sarah, the average teenager, if you ask them for what they understand about God, spiritual warfare, demons, angels, they will answer more for what they learned from the show Supernatural 
then they will answer from Scripture. It has come up in youth. And I'll be honest, an amazing number of adults saying that. If I ask them, do you really understand this stuff? Oh, yeah. Like I was, I understand, demons are like this. And you know, where, where'd you learn that? I don't really recall. I'm pretty sure I do. Is that in Supernatural? Oh, yeah, that's right. Is that a TV show or a movie? It's a TV show. It's been on for 97,000 years. <laughs> Actually, it's like one of the longest running uh, sci-fi TV shows in American television. So. Is that on cable? I'm sure it is. Yep. Anyway, all that started with The Exorcist in 1971. So I really want you to understand how things actually affect other things as time goes on. 1971, it's also the year that the New American Standard Bible was published. Everybody says, whoop, whoop, with me. <laughs> That's where we'll start next time. But I want to encourage us, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of reaction against conservatism. But there's also, pendulum swings back. The New American Standard is an active, conscious, conservative pendulum swing. They're like, we will consciously try to swing the pendulum back this way, as hard as we can possibly swing it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for all that's gone before. Help us to understand the world we're living in, because it's the children and grandchildren of this world that we're talking about. Father, when when, when we assume that we're Christians, but we don't impart that to our kids, and we assume that they're Christians, and they grew up on Manamo, and they don't even impart that to their children, so our grandchildren end up being an unreached people group the entire time that we're all just going to church. Lord, help us to understand where that comes from. Help us to make a decision here today to not be the kind of strict, domineering, artificial Christianity that pushes our children away, or the kind of lax, I don't even seem to care about a Christianity that gives them nothing to latch on to. Help us to be truly engaged in everything that we do, so that our children are truly engaged in everything that they do. We give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.